This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Unlock the Churches read a headline last week in an online article in The Oldie, written by the magazine's editor, Harry Mount. He wrote, At a time of national crisis, if only there were some big empty buildings where people could go and reflect in an atmosphere of beauty and calm, if only they were so big that you would automatically practice social distancing because there are so many chairs and so few people. Oh, hang on! Like magic, these buildings do exist in every village, town and city in the country. They're called churches, and yet both the Anglican and Catholic Church have, in their wisdom, closed them down. Of course, it's understandable that they stopped services, although, such is the state of both churches in this country, that lots of congregations were self-isolating through sparse attendance long before the virus struck. But why not leave them open for people to wander into, to sit and, if they want, to pray? An empty church is much less of a risk than, say, a supermarket or your own front door when meeting a delivery man. Harry continued, There is nowhere better to consider difficult times than in an empty church. Despite being an agnostic, I often find myself head in hands, bent over in empty churches, in a position which I'm sure isn't coincidental, is just like praying. Harry dropped round earlier to see me, and what you're about to hear is a conversation carried on at a safe distance with the two of us in my sitting room, shouting into a carefully disinfected iPhone. I was walking past a Catholic church, which has got to remain nameless, because if I name it, then the poor priest will only get his collar felt by the local bishop, and I know the bishop, and he's a great finger of collars. There are any collars, I hasten to add. But there was a sound of plain chant coming out of the church. In fact, it was just plain chant coming through the public address system. But inside, the doors were open for anybody to see, and inside were just 12 people, maybe, praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament, which is on the altar. And I noticed one of the 12 people was a priest from the church, just at the back, wrapped up in his own thoughts. And it was absolutely lovely and very surprising, apart from anything else, because it was the very day that the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster had laid down the law so authoritatively about this. And I went and lit a candle. There was a big candle, and I lit my candle from that, and in the process managed to extinguish the main candle. So I then had to go and ask one of the worshippers who fished out a cigarette lighter. What's wrong with that? It's actually incredibly easy to maintain social distancing inside a church. Yeah, no, nowhere easier on earth. Because the other thing is, during all these walks, where can you go? Uh, you can go for a lovely walk in the park. But some policemen, I was told, are stopping old people from taking little breathers on uh, benches in Bexhill-on-Sea in their terrible 
zeal for stopping people taking pleasure at this time. And I think you've put your finger on it. The zeal for stopping people permeates the public sector generally. Actually, it did during the Second World War as well, when Britain was overrun with people who were called little Hitlers, you know, park keepers became extra officious during the war. But um, I think we're seeing that now. And perhaps the difference is that the Anglican and Catholic churches have so wholeheartedly adopted the computer-says-no attitude of the public sector. I mean, honestly, bishops automatically end up in who's who, I think, most of them. And really, they ought to give saying no as their hobby. Because a bishop likes nothing better than saying, no, you can't do that. And that's fine when it comes to the Ten Commandments, but not to when it comes, into, uh, comes to... Well, the only, thing, the only thing I'll say yes to is something that involves polishing their own halo, in terms of winning approval of Guardian readers. Yes, well, I be, exaggerate slightly, but... And it'd be interesting what's point. going to happen in the future that I think the poor Italians are now hitting breaking point because I think they've had is it two more weeks of lockdown than us, or three more weeks. And not surprisingly, not least, a lot of them haven't got any money, but they're going stir crazy. And if, as is hoped, they're reaching their peak now and they gradually dial down the lockdown, when we reach that same period, They've got to think about what things to open first. And of course, football matches are going to be last. That's quite right. But I would have thought one of the first things would be to open churches because people would be desperate for solace. And I can think of no better place to get solace than in a church. But for that to happen, you'll need the bishops to play ball. Now, what's interesting about this current ban is that I assumed from the way... Cardinal Nichols was talking about it, that the ban had come from the government. In fact, the story was that there's some mix-up and the the Ministry of Housing had misunderstood this or that regulation and we're simply following what the government is telling us to do anyway. But on closer examination, it looked to me as if the Catholic bishops had gone to the government and said, do you realise you're still allowing us to stay open? Shut us down now. I think you're right. If it turns out to be the case that the government closed down the churches, then we should modify what we've just said. But I'm pretty sure it was a unilateral decision first, I think, by the Catholic Church and then very shortly afterwards by the Anglican Church and they made their decision separately. I'm pretty sure it was from their sides because actually you and I know the Prime Minister, whatever his faults, he is a libertarian. I'd imagine he would see that of all the places to keep open, the church is one of the good ones. Now, the Prime Minister, like you, is what might be described, perfectly politely, as an agnostic Anglican. There's a lot of agnostic Anglicans around, a lot of agnostic Catholics, too. Although christened a Catholic, of course. Yes, he was christened a Catholic. But we won't get into the subject of his apostasy and the price he may have to pay for it in the afterlife. However, what is the appeal of a church which is expressly dedicated to the worship of God and pretty much nothing else, at least ostensibly, to somebody who isn't sure they believe in God. I once met a monk who asked me that question, because I love old buildings, and and he said, do you feel something special when you go inside a church? And I say, yes, they're incredibly beautiful and moving, and um, I feel more contemplative there. And he said, he was a clever monk, he said, do you feel different when you go round a country house? And I said, actually, yeah, you've got me, because country houses, I love going round them for their beauty and history and the pictures and all the rest of it. But I don't feel that same particular feeling. And he said, that particular feeling is religion, and you're clearly 
religious. Well, I'm not sure if he's right about that last point, but there certainly is a massive difference between going to a beautiful country house and a beautiful church. I don't know what you call that. Do you call it religion or spirituality? I take it even one step further. I quite often go to church, like I did a couple of weeks ago and burst into tears, find myself sitting in a pew with my head in my hands, not quite clasped together in a praying gesture, but bent over. In one of those strange sort of Anglican compromise Karma Sutra praying mantis. Exactly. The compromised yes. Karma Sutra praying mantis yes. position. But you suddenly realise that you are to all intents and purposes praying. And you happen to be surrounded by beautiful things. So here I was in this beautiful 18th century church in Dorset, surrounded by incredible 18th century tombs by some of the greatest sculptors in England. And then it's impossible to talk about going to church without quoting from church going, Philip Larkin's favourite poem, a famous poem, and you, your listeners will have heard it a million times, but he, he also, I think, probably an agnostic or an atheist, but he talks about feeling a need to go to these places because he finds, he says all humans suddenly surprise themselves by a desire for seriousness. He puts it better than that. But a desire for seriousness, there's another bit in the poem where he says people will go to these places because other people have gone to them before for serious reasons, for mourning reasons or marriages or christenings, whatever it might be. And you mentioned the question of whether this was religion or spirituality or whatever. And these arguments tend to lead nowhere, but the best thing I've read on the subject is by an anthropologist called Pascal Boyer called Explaining Religion. Quite a big fat book, but very, very good. And his, his line essentially is that what you've got to understand about religion is that there is no single religious instinct and attempts to define religion are always going to sort of slip away from underneath your fingers because religion performs so many functions or we use religion to describe so many different aspects of the human personality. It's not just people reciting the creed or attending matins religiously, as it were or joining a cult, or whatever. There are so many different aspects to it, and one of them might be you're going into church without necessarily signing up to a belief in the deity. But then, for goodness sake, some great world religions don't believe in a single god, or even really, in the case of many Buddhists, any gods at all. So, I think it was a religious impulse. It's interesting that you respond, though, so acutely to church interiors. I mean, you've written about it a lot. Uh, I don't was... find that funny enough. I don't find that. But then I was frog-marched to church as, well, a child and a teenager. So the urge to nip into a church only seizes me on special occasions, as it were. I mean, that doesn't mean I don't go, go to church because I, I have to, because I do. I'm sure that's but... true. I, I went to church, you know, Christmas and Easter in my family, and that, that was about it. So I think, like, so many things in life, when you choose to do it and actually I really got into it having studied um, architectural history so I just got really interested in the actual buildings really to begin with and going around them and you know the old cliche about wanting the best that's been thought and said well a lot of the best that's been thought said sculpted built is in the 20,000 British parish churches they're astonishing treasure houses of architectural and artistic beauty, as well as the extreme interest and spirituality of um, the religion that goes with it. Again, I wasn't that well taught about religion when I was at school, so I was really struck. You'll remember, Damon, we both in the Daily Telegraph, 
together 15 years ago uh, in the great days of the editorship of Charles Moore and quite a lot of the discussions in the leader conference often turned to high-minded discussions of religion and Christianity and Catholicism. And I stayed silent. Actually, Charles Moore it. never let me anywhere near a leader conference. <laughs> okay, it wasn't okay, until okay. he left. But he anyway, would knock yeah. me on the door yeah. like in the graduate. But, but I stayed silent because I knew so little about it. But I found it very, very interesting. So if you go to churches, not only have the beauty of the building, the sculpture, the paintings, you also start to teach yourself a little bit about the history of Christianity as well. They're just completely fascinating intellectually and moving spiritually. It's a very quick way of learning a lot of history. You're quite right. Because each aspect of a church has a different theological function and a different social function. And I'm sounding a bit like the Open University here. No, but it's true. You don't have your gift for conjuring up the magic of churches on which subject... I want to ask you, for the benefit of Holy Smoke listeners, if you would suggest some places which, were they open, yeah. would be an ideal environment in which to contemplate the awfulness or the anxieties or the hope or whatever of these, this, these strange times. Well, I would say my favourite church in London is St Bartholomew the Great in Smithfield. Which has a fantastic vicar, Marcus Walker. Oh, right. Oh, a very, very good vicar. And it's an incredibly well-organised parish in one of the few places in which high Anglicanism is really thriving. Oh, really? And I want to get him on this podcast one day. Oh, yeah. Well, it's an astonishing church founded in 1123. And so it, at its chancel end, it has the best Romanesque stroke Norman interior and pillars, I'd say, in London. And then you'll remember from the lessons I've given you, Damo, 1123... Is just at the cusp when you're about to move from Norman uh, Romanesque into Gothic. So a little later, a crossing of the church was built. So two of the arches on the crossing are round, like Norman churches are, and then the other two crossings have a point. So the beginning of the Gothic period, early English Gothic has begun. So it's an extraordinary place for understanding English architectural history, but also it's on a vast scale. Only half of it survives because it was a priory church and the whole of the nave was um, uh, destroyed in the Reformation. So you're Destroyed get... in the Reformation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You make it sound like the Reformation was an act of God. It was destroyed by Protestants, was it not? Yes, I didn't say it wasn't. <laughs> okay, I know. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. So... I, I've been restraining myself from pointing out that I'm, I'm, St. Bartholomew's was not built by the C of E, but anyway. Well, yeah, I'm aware of that. I know you are. I, I imagine. imagine. I also yes. didn't say that. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so the nave was chopped down, but even though it's only half a church, absolutely enormous, and these very, very simple, massive, fat, round columns, Norman columns, with very, very simple capitals on top of them, the top of the column extremely moving. It's got a later lady chapel at the far end. Astonishing survival. For those with lower taste, it's also where the great duck-faced jilting scene was filmed in four weddings and a funeral. And there's a perfect example of a church that should be open. I go there a lot, not very far from my flat. I've never, ever, 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 ever seen more than a couple of other people in this huge interior. So it's, it's equivalent, really, walking down a street with having two people on the other side of the street. Well, I remember a couple of years ago, I was very privileged to have the opportunity to be more or less on my own, that is, with two or three other people, in an empty Westminster Abbey. Amazing. To walk down Westminster Abbey's nave 
to stand in the little chapel of Henry V, I'm not an expert in these things, but which was suspended perilously from the ceiling somewhere, and to look down at the church. And I suddenly saw Westminster Abbey as a church rather than a tourist attraction, because I think they've very badly overdone it. But everybody, there was three or four of us, and we were all completely overwhelmed by seeing Westminster Abbey as it was intended to be, as a church. And the visceral, I can't do this talking, thinking out loud business, but we were sort of hushed into silence by the building itself, if that isn't too pretentious. No, no, but it's, there's like so many buildings, but particularly West is completely astonishing survival. And there's layer after layer of history, so that you finally reach Henry VII's Chapel, remarkable yes. chapel, Incredible. represents, Trials does it not? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I remember the dean, who was a very nice man, showing us around. He obviously has quite Catholic sympathies because he pointed out that there was a little, um, now I don't know the technical terms for it, but there was um, a little depiction in the ceiling of a side chapel of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which had escaped the reformers. Amazing. Who would have stripped it out. And the dean was rather pleased that it had. And nobody would have noticed it. Yes, None of us would have noticed it if he hadn't pointed it out. So, as you say... But there is, a, I mean, an extraordinary treasure house of history. Okay, give us some more, give us some more. Okay, um, near my office, the oldie office uh, in Margaret Street, I'm sure you know it well, mm. is the very high Anglo-Catholic church. I think it's All Saints, isn't it? All Saints, Margaret Street, yeah. indeed. Uh, a completely astonishing Gothic revival. and Favourite church of Betchman's. Was it? I think it was. I, yeah. I bet it was. Uh, on a, actually, on a very boxes. tiny footprint, you walk down a St. Margaret Street and it's set back from the road in a footprint about the size of, I don't know, three or four terraced houses. But it gives a uh, feeling of incredible space and height and colour and also smell. It's, it's quite a lot of um, incense being burnt there. And it's height of the Gothic revival in the mid to late 19th century. Well, it's also, of course, the height of the Anglo-Catholic revival. The Anglo-Catholic revival. And I think I'm right in saying that Edward VII, before he became king, which was most of his life, used to occasionally visit him, which would have been really flying in the face of the approved religion of his family, which certainly would have regarded, you know, Queen Victoria would have regarded Margaret Street with absolute horror. Maybe that's why he went there. I didn't know that, but that's fantastic. Decorative, decorated Gothic style copying um, original Gothic churches of 13th and 14th century. So again, if you think about it for a moment, completely surreal that in among these 19th century houses, there's this huge building copying medieval churches from about 1300. Also, as a place of solace, and I can see this would be difficult now, but quite often when I go in there at lunchtime, it's completely silent, except the only sound you hear is the snoring of tramps who come in there to sleep, which again, if you regimented it well, actually, because you need to separate people, obviously, with the coronavirus, but the really tragic thing about central London at the moment, I've been going every day to the office, is that everyone's gone, except for the homeless. So some of these these people who I'm afraid most of us ignore suddenly really prominent. They're the only people there, a few office workers hurrying past, but they're just stationary, these poor people with no one to give money to them. Nowhere for them to go. It's still and quite no cold. church where they can have a quick kiss. Exactly. I wonder all... how the clergy feel about this. I certainly get messages from clerics saying that 
they're actually horrified by the way they've been forced to withdraw a really crucial aspect of their Christian witness, which is just opening the bloody building in the morning. Yeah. But you think how quickly, it is amazing, I think, how quickly the British and people all over the world have adapted to this horrible thing, that if you go to supermarkets or post offices, people very, very obediently, politely follow the rules. They stand two metres apart from each other. They'll stand on their little um, posts marked out by tape on the floor. And you, you could do the same. The, the, the underemployed vicars at the moment could literally be like the man in the post office near me saying, um, I'm afraid we've only five people at a time, which is more than you normally get on any uh, average day. But, and that's true. And in the case of many parishes, the vicars aren't underemployed. They have to work very hard because there aren't enough clergy. But what they do have, in the case of many parishes, is an absolute army, certainly the diocese, have an absolute army of bureaucrats and ministers and this and that, ministers of making the tea and ministers of wagging the finger and all the rest of it. It's not rocket science. Forgive the cliche, it really yeah. isn't rocket science yeah. to limit the number of people entering the church at any one time. Exactly. And think about that other very benevolent army of a, a million volunteers at thousands of churches who would be extremely happy to, following the rules, serve tea, bit of food, set up a food bank within these churches, which is the extraordinary thing about them is there's one in every single village, town and city in this country. You don't need to, unlike with the uh, poor, unfortunate people who need a, a new pop-up hospital, you don't need a new pop-up place where people can pray and possibly get access to a food bank. Magically, they're all there. Well, what really sticks in my throat is that vicars are always talking about how their parish churches can be centres for the community, even though people don't attend their services anymore. Here's their chance. It would require a little light regulation, nothing more. And they flunked it. Yeah. And quite literally, Shelter, my third and last church, because we can talk about churches in London, is my parents got a cottage in Pembrokeshire and I'm one of the trustees for the restoration of a lovely medieval church called St Mary's in Warren, a tiny hamlet near my parents' cottage. And that remains, uh, that has, before coronavirus, remained open and has a service once every couple of months. But they brilliantly, until coronavirus, kept it open for when the weather was really bad. It's right by the coast. So walkers could um, take refuge there. Your church is the perfect places for... For refuge, and that is a very remote part of Wales. I've been there dozens of times, never seen a single other person there. That seems tragic and completely crazy that a church like that is closed. Well, I'm sure if that church has closed, and has it? I, I haven't checked, but I think right. they, they, well, I imagine they, they, they've I, all been told to. I'm they? sure if it has closed, it wasn't the decision of the vicar. No, no, very decent, must add, very decent. This is the pattern I'm coming across again and again and again, which is that the clergy wanted to keep them open. The bishop said, no. Is it laziness? Is it control freakery? Is it some diabolical combination of the two? Oh, I think just to establish, I don't think it's, I think it's right, I don't think it's individual bishops. It's the whole church has decreed this. I don't think bishops have a choice. Well, actually, in the case of the Catholic Church, it is normally up to bishops, and I think in the Anglican Church it would be too, but what they do, these dreadful things called bishops' conferences, when bishops get together, they're completely unnecessary bodies. Bishops' conferences take these decisions. So all the bishops sign up to it, like cabinet responsibility. 
whoever's decision it was, I'd put it down to our old friend virtue signalling because in that balance I was talking about between safety and sanity, you'll always be literally safer if you whack up the safety at the expense of sanity by whacking up health and safety, etc. So um, I put it down to virtue signalling that you're going to be on the side of right in theory if you say and we can't risk any greater infection whereas it takes more of a sort of brave maverick to say at the tiny increase of a risk of infection it's worth providing the solace of these wonderful buildings well if you're a brave maverick in either the Anglican or catholic churches one thing is for sure you're never going to wear a mitre harry mount thank you very much and just let me leave you with this thought You're saying it's the safer option, in many cases, for the bishops to decide to close these churches. Well, let's see just how safe it is, because one day these churches will reopen, and people will think, where were you when I needed you? And they won't come back.